Why don't we open our Bibles to the book of First Peter? First Peter. So we started a brand new series last week. We're going to continue in that this week. First Peter. Um, what I want to do by way of kind of introduction uh, of this particular book is just kind of give you a little bit of a, um, a, a direction as to where we're going to be going. So last week we essentially started our teaching series in this brand new. Uh, book in this series. Uh, we will be going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. There's five of them. Uh, what I've encouraged you to do is to like read through it on your own. Um, it should not take you that long. It's literally a 20 minute read. If you just sit down in one setting, if you're like me and you have a really hard time even reading, actually sitting down and reading, uh, honestly, I'm a horrible reader in terms of like sitting down. I can't sit still for very long. I just get agitated and I'm moving. Or if I'm the opposite where I just fall asleep. And either way, it's, it's like an exercise in defeat and failure. Um, um, I like to, to listen to it. So you can check out like version. These are free opportunities by way you can like hear the scripture read to you. If you would like a companion uh, to come alongside you to help you in this larger task of reading through the book of First Peter, and I don't mean like a companion coming alongside you in terms of a human being, but as far as a resource guide, um, I've created an actual resource guide that will be available for you. In fact, one of the best ways for you to be able to access that is that little QR code that's on the back of the little tent there. You should see it right there. It should be like a, a burnt orange um, burnt blood orange type of an image right there. Um, you can just go scan that and that will immediately take you to our like, little link tree. Um, and on that, there should be uh, towards the top that just says resource guide, First Peter resource guide. And that will be a living document, which means it will continue to grow. There'll be more features added to it. But right now, the big idea behind that is to uh, equip you with uh, certain means of being able to read the scripture, uh, to have some good understanding in terms of what the book of First Peter is all about. There's an introduction on there from the people at the Bible Project. Um, there's a whole series that I actually made available from the Bible Project on that document in terms of how to read the Bible. So maybe if you are new to even reading the Bible yourself, or it's not a practice that you've engaged in before, um, this will help you to really even try to understand how do you even begin to read the scripture. We want to help create a culture in our church that is fluent in the Bible. We realize uh, many in our culture today are not really fluent. We want to do what we can to try to offset that. So um, that being said, I want to jump into the teaching here this morning um, and begin to look at this. Now, obviously, all of this is kind of within the backdrop of what's happened in our nation over this past week. Again, as I was thinking about this, um, the past several months has been extremely difficult for us as people from the pandemic to racial tensions to all forms of injustices that have been happening to what's taken place over this past week. And I don't know about you, um, but I realize that there are varying degrees of anxiety and stress and worry that these types of events cause us to engage with. And as a church, as a community of people really trying to live out the mission of Jesus here on the Central Coast and beyond, um, we realize we do ourselves as a community a disservice to either ignore these things. So what we uh, want to do is to engage them, but to engage these types of things in a way that allow us to move into and press into even more so Jesus, who's our true king. 
So uh, what we will be doing, and I'll mention this again towards the end of my teaching, uh, we will create space today throughout the day to just pray. Again, we realize some of you have taken this and you, you're, you're dealing with it in a way that's just maybe unhealthy. We want to pray for you. We want to know how to help you process the type of grief and the grievous types of th- circumstances that are taking place. Um, so immediately after the service, we'll have some of our elders and leaders available to pray for you. Um, but another way in which you can engage as well is uh, tonight at six o'clock to seven o'clock. Um, we will also be having a time to pray as well. Um, that will be via Zoom, uh, but that Zoom will also become a Facebook live event as well. So uh, the best way for you to access information on that again is check out that QR code. That QR code is sort of your one-stop access to not only our first peer teaching guide, uh, resource guide, but also the means of gathering and joining with us via our Zoom prayer time tonight. Again, some of you really need to process and pray, and you're feeling that angst. We want to be able to pray for you. Join us. We feel at this moment, um, in fact, before we jump into the teaching, I want to just read something that I had uh, posted a couple days ago, and this sort of encapsulates uh, some of the thoughts that I've been processing. It says this, pray for kings is just First Peter, First uh, Timothy chapter 2. It says this, pray for kings and for all rulers that are in authority, that we may live a peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. And I wrote, our nation is at a crossroads. The question of who are we and what will we become are prominent. For a meaningful future, I wrote, violence cannot be the answer. Tribalism cannot be the answer. Hatred cannot be the answer. As just one of many in our nation who first and foremost claim loyalty to Jesus, the raw, unedited, unfiltered Jesus that's been revealed in scripture, whose central message is Matthew 5 through 8. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And whose definitive action was humbly laying down his life for others. I wrote, I'm deeply saddened and grieved by the events of our capital but this is an opportunity for us to press in and pray and to be God's people in this moment, in this time. Uh, to do that, what I want to do is I want to now transition into the teaching in First Peter. Because I think, again, as I mentioned last week, by way of our introduction to this message, the book of Peter is really a unique uh, text that was written to a community of people living throughout the ancient Roman world, particularly in the region of Rome. It was believed that Peter wrote this around mid-60s, early 60s. Um, and that would have meant that, according to a historical narrative, uh, there would have been a ruler by the name of Nero. Again, if you're familiar, even in the most remedial sense of Roman history. You know that Nero was a really, really bad dude. Uh, he ultimately ended up, was responsible for the, for the destruction, the uh, burning down of the city of Rome, and then ultimately blaming it upon Jews and Christians, and then creating a unique form of chaos that then uh, came out in a mass destruction of a lot of people. Uh, two people that were ultimately killed, we know, under the leadership of Nero, were not only the Apostle Paul, but also Peter, the one who's writing this. And he's writing this book in the middle of a context where um, these tensions are brewing. They hadn't reached that fever pitch yet that we just described, but they were brewing. And what that meant was Christians were kind of in a unique place where they were feeling the angst of the moment. And the question that was on everybody's mind is how do we, how do we live? How do we engage in that particular moment? And Peter writes this book 
as, or this letter as a means of helping equip them to think through, to process, to rightly live for Jesus in the midst of this. And what I want to do today is, I mentioned last week, we're going to look at um, kind of uh, sort of an introduction or an overview of the book of Peter. And as I was thinking about this this morning, or actually this past week, past couple days in particular, is I realized I want to create some space immediately following uh, my teaching for us to pray. I feel like it's important. In fact, we'd be even remiss to not pause and really pray for our nation. Again, if we truly are at a crossroads, uh, what's happened in our nation this past week is unprecedented. Even conservatives like Ben Shapiro have described it as an insurrection. The most traumatic circumstance has ever happened in a lifetime. I mean, that's the, the degree to which these things have taken place. And how they're being described. But the point of the matter is, is I don't want to in any way underestimate what's happened. And use it as an opportunity for us as God's people to pray. To pray for God's peace. To do exactly what scripture informs us to do. To pray. To be people of peace. And to stand firm in the midst of this type of stuff. But what I want to do is, I mentioned last week, is we're going to essentially do an overview. And because I want to create space to pray, uh, my overview is going to be shorter today. And so that means it'll be a two-part overview. So you're welcome. So what I want to do is I want to just look at two parts of this. In the first part of this overview, I want to ask kind of the why of what's, why this book was written. And the next week, we'll look at the what. Like what is the overall overarching overview of what's happening here throughout the entire book. So again, as I mentioned last week, this is more of like a 30,000 above sea level view of this entire book. So today I want to just mainly focus on the big question of, of why. Why was this book written? I want to let Peter give us some definitive answers as to the why. So if you want, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of First Peter. Hopefully you're already there to First Peter chapter 5. I want to read Peter's own words on this. First Peter chapter 5 verse 12, he says this. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And then he says, by way of this exhortation, stand firm on it or in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. A couple things real quickly. Uh, number one is he addresses the grace of God. He says, I wrote to you guys about God's grace, what God has done for you, his unmerited favor that has been shown to you that are recipients of this. But then his exhortation is to stand firm. And that's what I want to look at real quick. But one final thing before I jump into that is he describes from where he's writing here or to whom he's writing. He says, she who is in Babylon. Um, the point that a lot of scholars believe that he's addressing, um, some like John Calvin had described Babylon being a reference to Jerusalem. Other scholars have identified that perhaps that what he's referring to is not literal Babylon, meaning on the Euphrates River, somewhere in modern day Iraq, but Babylon in terms of a metaphor or euphemism to describe the city of Rome. Most scholars would agree that this is probably what he's referring to. And if that's the case, what's fascinating about that is he's using the mindset or the phrase Babylon to describe kind of a system, a system that devours and grinds other human beings. Um, the, the, what that means is that the idea or the spirit, if you want to think of it that way, of Babylon continues to this day. Babylon, by way of spirit or metaphor, is seen in any empire 
that grinds and devours and destroys and ruins or uses its power as a means of extortion or destruction of other human beings. And this is what he seems to be identifying is that we are in the midst as he's writing these people. We are in the midst of a, of a, of a society that's grinding and destroying and ruin, ruining people's lives. And yet in the midst of this, we as God's people are called to live and to engage and so that's the big question I want for us to think about. And again, this brings up the question of why. Why was he writing? I want to just look at three quick things. He says, number one, that we are to stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. Um, the word that he uses there is actually interesting. <clears throat> he uses the word stand firm. It's one, one word in the Greek, two words in the English. Stand firm. It's the actual Greek word his, histamine. We get the English word. Guess what it is? Uh, histamine. Um, we oftentimes think of like an antihistamine. So what does that word mean? It's really interesting. So what a histamine is, is it's a substance that's actually released in your body, my body, and it plays a really important role of inflammation. In other words, for example, we oftentimes think of histamines being connected with um, a time of year that we're coming up upon uh, with regard to pollen and breathing stuff and or some form of uh, you know, dander, whatever that we kind of take into our body and there we get a runny nose. What's happening there is inflammation and it's causing us to have a runny nose or the sniffles or the cases. But what, what's happening or what's taking place is this is, this is a response from your body to attack or to stand against, stand firm against any form of invading ideas or concepts, or in this case, um, agents that would cause problems to your body. Um, it's an immuno response. It's important. We need it. Um, we oftentimes take antihistamines because we don't like the runny nose or those types of things that end up happening. So we take something to kind of combat the histamines. But this is the word that, she's act that he actually uses here is the word histamine, that we are to stand strong. So what he's describing is that as the body has this immuno response to stand against foreign invaders. So we as human beings following Jesus have to stand firm. Recognize that there are things that are seeking to corrupt or disrupt or invade or to pervert or to steal our minds and our hearts away from the baseline of being in God. And here's what he's saying. Stand firm. So what I want to do is I want to look at three specific things and kind of ask the question, what does it mean? How does Peter intend, again, by way of overview of the entire book? Um, we will get more into the nitty gritty of this as we begin to look chapter by chapter and verse by verse at this at a more uh, in-depth look. But right now, in terms of an overview, what, how does he intend for us to stand firm? Three things. Number one, I think he describes for us to be people. People of, and I'll just give them to you, people of truth. Uh, he describes for us to be people of holiness. And then thirdly, he describes for us to be people of peace. So people of truth. People of holiness and people of peace. I'm going to go through these one by one and we'll be done. Number one, people of truth. And what he means by this, I think we see throughout the entire book, is he roots the storyline of the people to whom he's writing in the very storyline of the Bible. So I'll give you an example of this. Peter was not only well fluent of the Old Testament scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Um, but he writes extensively about these things. I'll give you just a handful of examples in the first two chapters. And again, throughout the entire book, uh, the whole Bible is kind of interlaced. In fact, if your Bible was filled with what hyperlinks, what's, what's hyperlink, right? It's a blue underlined text. If your Bible right now had hyperlinks, it'd be very blue with a lot of underlined text. 
which means because every single time Peter's referencing an Old Testament passage, whether by way of direct quote or an allusion, um, this is Peter's writing with this deep awareness of the storyline that he's inherited, which means Peter is not simply creating his own future. Peter's receiving something that's been given to him. Do you understand the beauty of this? Because we live in a culture that basically says we are untethered, we're untouched, unattached from anything. We have freedom to do, to create whoever it is that we want to be. And what oftentimes that's done is it's kind of causes to become detached and untethered from any form of deep, sustainable storyline. And what Peter is actually doing is the exact opposite. He's saying, no, my life, my future, and my present, as well as my past, is deeply rooted and anchored in a storyline. Uh, there's a passage in the New Testament that describes that we inherited the faith. We don't make up the faith. We're not innovators of the faith. We've received the faith. And so what Peter is going to describe, so for example, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16, he says, be holy for I am holy. It's an Old Testament allusion out of Leviticus chapter 11. Uh, again, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 24 says, all flesh is grass and the glory of men are like the flowers. It's an allusion to, or a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 3 says, indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is a direct quote from Psalm 34. Um, again, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. This is a direct quote from Psalm 118. I'll give you one more. First Peter chapter two, verse six. He says, for it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. This is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 28. Again, I can go on and on and on. But the point of the matter is, is that Peter is deeply committed to truth. He didn't create truth. He's not making his own truth. His truth is not relative to how he feels today versus tomorrow. His truth is not some sort of uh, subjective truth. His truth is an objective truth that's rooted, tethered to a story. Our culture tells us that story is restrictive. It's destructive. I would like to suggest to you the exact opposite. That story that Peter gives to us is actually life-giving. And he's inviting us to live our lives according to that. So what it means to be people devoted to truth is that we are anchored in the truth, which also means we combat lies. We identify where those non-truths lay and we combat them. The second thing is that we describe or we see that he is wanting us to stand firm, to be people that are uh, devoted to holiness in Jesus. And again, this is one of those words that oftentimes gets misused. We will get more in depth in terms of looking at this. Again, this is just more of a 30,000 feet above sea level look at this. So I'm not going to go too much into it. But the idea of holiness means to be separated, set apart specifically for some particular purpose. And in this case, he's saying you as human beings are set apart to God. So just as what it means to be people of truth means we combat lies, what it means for us to be people that are devoted to holiness means that we must not be conformed to cultural norms or idols. Another way we can think of it is we have to confront those things. We have to identify the fact that we as human beings, we live in a culture. We know this. But do you understand, do you realize to what degree the culture that we live in is actually influencing and shaping you? Many of us, we don't. It's kind of like the David Foster Wallace 
ideology of a fish not being aware that it's wet because that's a culture that lives in. It's not aware of the fact that there's wetness surrounding it. The moment that fish gets out of water, then it realizes I'm not wet anymore because it's been introduced into a new culture. In the same way, many of us, we just absorb the culture around us. We never are able to really critically think or or criticize or think about uh, in a critical fashion the actual culture that's influencing us because we are constantly feasting, feeding our mind, our, imag- our imagination upon the culture that's around us. And what it means for Peter to stand firm in the grace of God is it means that we have to recognize that we are called by Jesus to be a different type of people in this culture, which means we have to be able to confront and identify and not be conformed by the cultural idols. I want to pause and think about this. So I'll give you an example. First Peter chapter one, verse 16, uh, three different occasions. Peter actually uses this vocabulary. This is why there's more of an overview. First Peter uh, one 16, he says, since it is written, be holy for I am holy. First Peter chapter two, verse nine says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. First uh, Peter chapter three, verses 14 and 15. I'll read it. Listen, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear uh, nor be troubled. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. In other words, be holy, be set apart, be the type of person that is deeply devoted to Jesus. And to do that well, we need to identify, are there other forms of influence that are overtaking us? So I'll give you an example of this, that if you were to go back into an ancient culture civilization, if you and I were to like find a wormhole somewhere on the premise of this you know, place and walk through that wormhole and come out the other side into ancient Rome and you were to be walking around, one of the things that you would identify, I would encourage you to think about the, what we would describe as iconography, the icons, the images, the statues. What do the statues, what do the icons, what do the symbols, if you would, what do the symbols have to say about an ancient culture and civilization? In fact, Anyone that studies ancient civilizations, they realize one of the best ways to identify what a culture's value were is just look at the statues, look at the symbols, look at the images, because they tell you a lot about what they valued. So for example, uh, we can, you know, I had an opportunity back in February to go back to, uh, to, to go to Israel. And we walked around some of these ancient streets and we saw some of the things, for example, some of the cities that you can go to. And if they have like a massive, like, like, like a hippodrome or a theater, what that immediately tells you is that as a culture, number one, they had money because those things weren't cheap to build. Number two, they valued theatrics. They valued entertainment. They valued horse races. Uh, But you can look at the coinage. You can look at statues. For example, statues of some of the ancient uh, leaders of Rome. Or example, you can go into some of these other areas where they might have a massive statue of Zeus or Dionysius, the goddess of wine, or Diana, the goddess of sex. What those tell you is that as a culture, they valued power, a good time, and sex. So those symbols tell you something about an ancient culture and civilization. The question is, what symbols? Are you able to identify the symbols in our culture right now? Do you know what they are? Can you see them? Can you identify them? Or are we just imbibing them mindlessly, uncritically? Because they're all around us if you have eyes to see them. I'll give you an example. I think one of the things that is a powerful symbol, and it comes out in multiple different ways, 
in our culture, one that we value and that we saw put on display this past week is power. It's an idol. Power. And as long as you have power and whatever types of symbolism that identifies with that. Again, it could be anything from just even a gun to the name Trump to even the Black Lives Matter hand that's up. It's a symbol of power that says we do not want it and we want it or we have it and we will do everything we can to protect it. And when it's disrupted or when it's threatened, we will stop at no end to prove that we will, in a Machiavellian passion and form, grab it back. We'll stop at nothing to obtain it. So what happens when Christians absorb those symbols or live according to those things? What happens when that happens? We become the type of people that are shaped more by our culture around us. We look more like our culture than we do like Jesus. Conversely, think about some of the symbols of Christianity. I'll give you a couple examples of these. Number one, the cross. You know, we might even be so unaware of this because we just see people wear it around their neck all the time. But the cross, it was a symbol that describes defeat. It was a way in which early Christians recognized Jesus willingly gave himself into the grinding teeth of a world militaristic superpower and let that world militaristic superpower do to him what all power abuses do to other people. It grinds them. It's an image not of usurping power at any expense and stripping it from other people, but it's an image of laying one's life down. The climactic moment in Jesus' life when he's in the garden and he's faced with the reality, I'm about to die. He knows this clearly. But then he prays to his father. He says, Father, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. We see Jesus laying his life down. Not exercising a power grab, but the very opposite. Here's another symbol. The dove. The dove. It's, you know, uh, it symbolizes the Holy Spirit. It's not an eagle, right? It's not a bird of prey. It's not a predator. It's a dove. It's gentle. It's the image of the Holy Spirit. Here's another one. The bread and the cup. Symbol of nourishment, of food. You can throw another one in there, the table. The table symbolizes coming together. Uh, inclusion, a welcome. No matter who you are, no matter how broken you are, no matter how messed up you are, no matter how undeserving you are, you're welcome to this table to be nourished, to receive something from the hand of another person at their expense for your benefit. To put it in another nicely packaged word, the grace of God. God giving you something you don't deserve. Symbols are important. And the point that I want to make in terms of thinking about this, again, is holiness. This is how we stand firm. We live into our identity as being people that are devoted to Jesus. This, again, involves us not being conformed by the cultural idols. And it also involves us being able to confront those cultural idols. But if you do not know what those cultural idols are, there's a very strong possibility you have been influenced and or seduced by them. And they are activated in your life. 
But the beauty of it is that Jesus invites us out of that. Lastly, one of the ways in which we are invited to stand firm is by way of being people of peace, people devoted to peace. And what he regularly does throughout this book is he invites us to live another way, a different way. Uh, so for example, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Again, this is sort of an overview. What it means to be people of peace, it means that we carefully live out our agency as people of peace. So I'll give you an example of the way that Peter gets really practical about this. In verse two, uh, verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, Be subjected for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Did you catch that? It doesn't say go out and protest and hate and angrily uh, fight and resist. Again, he's writing to Christians living under the leadership of Nero. This does not mean, mind you, that there are not occasions a government needs to be pushed back upon. There's space for that. That's a whole other message. But I want to just want to point out, this is what Peter's referring to. Christians living in the space under the auspices of a powerful world militaristic super leader. And he says to them, be subject for the Lord's sake. In other words, like the Lord was to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, it's Nero, or to the governors as set to him to punish those that do evil and to praise those that do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put the silence ignorance of the foolish people. Then in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Whoever uh, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor Nero, honor the emperor. This is a radically different way of living. It's not found in our culture today. It's a way to live in a way that is like this call to first century believers. The point that I want to finish on is this idea. This is what it means to stand firm. Why did Peter write this? So that as you know the grace of God, that you will be able to stand firm in these things. How do we stand firm? We stand firm by being people that are devoted to the truth which means we combat lies. We stand firm by being people that are devoted to holiness in Jesus, which means we must not be conformed by the cultural idols and or must confront them. And then thirdly, we do so by way of being people that are devoted to peace by being agents of peace. And in closing, what I want to do right now is I want to just invite us to pray, to pray for our nation. I think this is essential. And we'll partake of communion together as we do that because this is what Jesus invites us into. And as soon as we're done with the service, um, I'm going to have some of our leaders come forward. They'll be available to pray for you. Zach will come up. He'll lead us in a song. Why don't we all stand? And I want to just take a moment as communion is being handed out. If you would like, you can just receive it. If you are at home, this is your cue to go ahead and grab a cracker or a cookie or something from the kitchen cabinet. Bring it together. If you're with your family, you can do this together as your community, as your group. We will do this together in this large group, which is awesome to see you all here. Um, if you don't want to partake communion, it's totally fine. You can just let them pass by. Um, if you are going to partake, they will hand it to you. Go ahead and grab it. Again, if you're unfamiliar with this whole packaging, it's on the top is a little wafer. This kind of like double wrap, take it open, and then you'll figure it out. You get the idea. But what I want to do right now is I want to just take a moment. I'm going to pray specifically, just as Peter invites us to, as well as other New Testament instructs us to, to pray for our leaders, our nation, our government, so that we would live a life of peace, so that we would be, so that we would be people of peace.
living according to the ways of God, that we would not be bound by these idols of the culture around us, but that would be people that are deeply bound, deeply committed, deeply devoted to the one who loves us and gave himself to us. So let's bow our heads right now, if you'd like, and just go ahead and pray along with me, and then we will sing a song, and then we'll partake of communion together. So Father, right now, we do come to you, and we humble ourselves, and we just, as, as people, God, we acknowledge the fact that we oftentimes don't even know what's in our own hearts. We don't come to you, God, in this basis of arrogance or pride or assurance as if somehow we have all the answers. We don't. But we come to you, Lord, on the basis of just realizing that you are king and you are good and you are powerful in the way that you, God, as this Trinitarian God, you use your power as a means of bringing forth good in the lives of other people. And ultimately through the Holy Spirit to empower those who are disempowered. So God, right now we pray for our government. We pray for President Biden. We pray for President Trump. We pray for this exchange, this passing on of one presidency into the next presidency. We pray, Jesus, for healing. We pray for wholeness. We pray, God, that even if it does not come from, which we don't, we'll obviously not be holding our breaths, even if it does not come from the highest levels of government, God, we want nonetheless ourselves to be people of peace and to live in such a way that we promote and demonstrate peace. It's one of the reasons why, Jesus, we take the bread and the cup. We remind ourselves that we are unworthy, as broken, as unlike you we are. We truly are the other compared to you. Yet, God, you have reached out to us to rescue us, to show kindness to us. And we, therefore, want to be people that are like that and live our lives in a way that promote that, that demonstrate that in this world that's deeply fractured, deeply broken, is deeply hemorrhaging. God, we want also to just repent. Search our hearts, Lord. Show us maybe areas in our lives that we have been more devoted to our own freedoms and to power than to you, Jesus, the one who disempowered himself, gave up his freedoms, took upon flesh and blood, limitations, and was ultimately fixed, nailed, to a cross, the ultimate image of restrictiveness and death. Jesus, we repent, we turn from, we confess our sin to you. And we confess and profess our confidence and faith in you, Jesus, as the one who loves us and gave himself to us.